Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. GX on Agriculture. With Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, grain markets were mixed during this holiday-shortened week. We'll hear from PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo about how the markets have been changing. Regina-based Protein Industries Canada has spearheaded almost half a billion dollars into plant-based food development in the past four years. We will have CEO Bill Gruel on today's program. And we will have the third and final program for our coverage of a producer forum on precision agriculture held December 7th at the Canola Discovery Forum in Saskatoon. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. But first, it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And that's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers bio meal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. It's also brought to you by Sean Prahitka, your Remax Blue Chip Ag Division Specialist. Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. With Phil Spivak from Precision Weather. And Phil, it's overcast here. We had some fog this morning, but it seems to have burned off. Yeah, still a bit of uh, cloud cover, but not too much left to uh, really cause any issues. The, uh, the the fog thinning out, the leftovers of that, uh, the cloudiness still hanging on, though I think for a good portion of the afternoon, if not partly sunny, I may be optimistic calling it partly sunny, but certainly there's a, uh, some of us will get into that, not everybody. Uh, but there will be some breaks in the overcast, some thinner spots. We're seeing the, the general uh, cloud cover thinning out as the day goes on. So certainly not the worst of days, uh, not much wind, temperatures not far from normal, so by the very tail end of the year standards, it's really not a bad day. Keeping in the threat for uh, some nuisance flurries mainly over the next hour or so, it's not that much falling. I think it's more often a little bit of moisture sort of trapped from the fog that's just kind of falling out rather than actual snow falling. And so that's why I'm saying uh, nothing as far as significant snowfall. But uh, don't be surprised to see the flurry in the air, uh, even the light wind moving some of that snow around too from the ground. Uh, The overall forecast, in fact, for the next few days features little or no falling stuff. And because the wind isn't much of a factor either, uh, not much blowing or drifting either. So pretty quiet weather pattern. Uh, Partly to mostly cloudy sky tonight will actually hold around minus 15. It's questionable, kind of jive these numbers. Uh, We're slow to rise, but then we're also going to slow to fall. The question is, do we actually fall or do we just hold steady and then rise a little bit in the evening and drop back? Either way, somewhere between minus 12, minus 15 for the next Oh, almost 24 hours, um, and then we finally climb up tomorrow to minus 11. The wind staying light turns around, though, from the southeast tonight into the northeast tomorrow. Still 15 kilometers per hour or less. Wind chill not a big factor. 
There will be a little extra thicker cloud cover tomorrow night, and with that thicker cloud, the chance for a couple of passing flurries. I'm uh, raising the chance to as high as 20% uh, for that. Uh, for the way this forecast is shaping up, that's actually high, but uh, there is a possibility for a few of those, again, again not amounting to, to anything of any consequence. Minus 15 is our low Saturday night and a partly sunny day on Sunday, kicking off the new year with a temperature right where it should be. Minus 11 with a very light wind. Sunday night looks pretty clear, too, and that'll set us up for a good deal of sunshine on Monday, though later in the afternoon, the cloud cover will mix back in. We'll average partly sunny through the day. Might be one of the brighter days of this stretch, holding out some hope for tomorrow, though, too. Minus 9 is the high on Monday, minus 10 on Tuesday, as the sun does break through for a little while. Again, the cloud cover moving around. These systems are coming through one after the other, but none of them with any consequences. These little disturbances that bring the cloud cover from time to time, and that's why our overall weather pattern is quiet and very consistent. These systems have nothing to work with, so they just bring the cloud cover and move right back out as quickly as they come in. That's Phil Spivak from Precision Weather. Temperatures around the region this hour. The Paw is at minus 17 degrees. Dauphin, Brandon, and Roblin minus 16. Swan River minus 15. Show Lake Russell minus 13. Regina is at minus 14 degrees. Saskatoon minus 11 Hudson Bay, Broadview Mooseman, minus 15. Indian Head, minus 13. Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington, minus 12. The Yorkton-Melville region has an overcast sky, a southeast wind at 9 kilometers an hour. 87% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 14 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 20 degrees. Yesterday, Yorkton reached a high of minus 15 degrees and dropped to a low of minus 19 degrees. There was a trace of precipitation that fell in the 24-hour period ending at midnight last night. The normal high for this date is minus 13. The normal low is minus 23. The sun rose in Yorkton at 8.54 this morning and it will set at 4.51 this afternoon. Extreme temperatures for Manitoba and Saskatchewan yesterday. The Manitoba hot spot was Sprague at minus 4 degrees. The cold spot Tadouli Lake at minus 25 degrees. The Saskatchewan hot spot yesterday was Cypress Hills Provincial Park. It got down to minus 3 degrees. The uh, cold spot was Key Lake at minus 33 degrees. And that's a look at your agriculture weather. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back right after this. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Grain markets were mixed during this holiday-shortened week. PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Pacallo says canola was up about $8 per metric ton, while spring wheat was down seven cents a bushel. Starting off on the canola front, as you mentioned, it was a shorter week with only trading days Wednesday, Thursday, and today for canola. But on the week, we increased approximately $8 a ton. The March contract sits at about eight seventy-five as we're talking here right now. On the Minneapolis wheat front, the U.S. markets were open Tuesday, so an extra 
a trading day for other markets other than canola. Minneapolis wheat on the March contract decreased approximately seven cents a bushel on the week. Today, quite strong, up about 15 cents. We were up closer to 20 at one point, where we currently sit at 9.28 and a half a bushel. So definitely on the wheat front, we've seen a rally a little bit more significantly on the Chicago contract since the beginning of the month, up about 65 cents a bushel. Minneapolis hasn't had as large of a rally, still up about 30. We're seeing a bit of cold weather in the U.S. having potentially some damage for the U.S. winter wheat crop. But we are starting to see, I think, you know, things, I would say, slow down a little bit on the momentum side right now, given the rally we've seen. So next week, I'm definitely going to be watching to see if, you know, if this does slow down, if we can break through $8 on the Chicago wheat contract and see if it can go kind of above there. He explains why canola is up and wheat is down this week. Well, kind of, you know, starting off on the canola front, one definitely positive factor has been on the soybean side. March soybeans actually traded to the highest level since June 17th overnight. So uncertainty on the weather situation for Argentina over the weekend and and weakness in the energy markets were seen as slight negatives. But I'm seeing, again, Argentina is expecting more dry and warm weather conditions. This will likely increase crop stress and add to the already stressful situation down there. Brazil's northern and central regions are forecast to receive some scattered rains over the next two weeks. But really, the story has actually been on soybean meal front. Again, with the weather in Argentina, the soybean meal contract today pushed up to new contract highs on the March. And we are seeing really just kind of some supportive factors here for canola. Soybean oil, though, however, is turning a little bit lower. So I've been still talking to producers about some new crop protection strategies. Given that we've seen now canola rally about $70 a ton here this month. Pacallo says he will watch trends in crude oil prices next week because it may set the tone for some grain prices as well. Meanwhile, Regina-based Protein Industries Canada has spearheaded almost half a billion dollars into plant-based food development in the past four years. CEO Bill Gruel says Protein Industries Canada has advanced the food and ingredients sector through more than 50 innovative projects. It's been a bit of a wild ride. We were created four years ago, and over the course of that time, we funded and supported 55 large-scale projects, all aimed at growing Canada's plant-based food sector, really trying to help farmers have new markets for their crops. And those 55 projects, that's totaled $477 million worth of investments, created a lot of good intellectual property, and most exciting, some new products on the store shelves as well. He outlines some of the new plant-based products that are on store shelves now that weren't four years ago. So a couple of products that your listeners might be able to find in stores here because they're available through, you know, Loblaws and Sobeys and Save-On Foods, Things like products from Big Mountain Foods, they're a company based out of Vancouver. They do alternative meats, so burgers and sausages and that type of stuff, and also some alternative cheeses. We've got oat milk from a company out of Toronto that's doing some oat milk work and products from Dea Foods that your listeners might know them and see them in the dairy case. They do alternative cheese products as well. Gruel also tells us what consumers can expect to see in the near future. 
Well, I think uh, somewhat more of the same, but also some new and different products. I think what consumers will see in the next one to two years is what I would call the next generation of plant-based food products. So today what you're seeing is things that are mimicking ground beef, like sausages or patties. I think what we'll see in the future is meat products or alternative meat products that are mimicking whole muscle cuts of meat. And so we find it's some really exciting work looking at products that look and taste and feel just like a slice of fish. We've also got a company that's producing an alternative to Wagyu beef. And we recently launched a project with Conscious Foods based out of Vancouver that's doing a plant-based sushi. And I tried it the other day and it's pretty hard to tell the difference. He sees growth in plant-based foods in the future as well. I think the important thing for everybody listening is that plant-based food is going to grow, but so is meat, right? If you look at the population growth on a global basis, there will always be demand for meat for the next 20, 25 years it's growing. And so really what we're trying to do with plant-based foods is just fill that gap in the global need for calories, the global need for food, and what consumers are wanting these days. So overall, the food sector is set to grow. You know, the plant-based food sector may be growing a little bit faster, but, but, but overall, most categories are going to grow. Gruel predicts how big the plant-based food industry will be by 2035. We think that it's going to be a $250 billion economic opportunity. And, and we think that Canada is really well positioned to capture 10% of that market, which is, which is significant because if you look at globally, Canada's around 3.5% of the global agri-food market. So if we think we can achieve 10% of plant-based foods, that's really significant growth for the country. He says that would be $25 billion in annual sales by 2035. It absolutely is. And, you know, thanks to the great producers that we have in this country who are growing ample and sustainable crops, we've got a lot of opportunity to feed those processing facilities and build out plant-based foods. And Gruel outlines what the key crops will be for plant-based foods. So if you go to the grocery store today, most plant-based foods are made from soy protein and wheat protein. But what we're focused on is the crops that we grow at scale in Western Canada. So I think what you'll see more of in the future is uh, yellow peas being incorporated into plant-based foods. Fava bean is a real interesting crop from food processors because it's got a very neutral taste. Chickpea protein is an interesting one because it's got some characteristics that make it a great egg substitute. So it's really all the crops that we're growing here in Western Canada. And it's interesting that food companies are looking for a lot of different ingredients because they have to get the right functionality, the right nutrition, the right cost. So, you know, Western Canada becomes an attractive place to source ingredients because of all the different crops. Bill Gruel is the CEO of Regina-based Protein Industries Canada. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, Ag Review. A Canadian Pacific freight train collided with a CP truck that was traveling along tracks east of Kamloops, B.C. It happened at about 10.30 yesterday morning. The truck burst into flames after the apparently head-on crash on tracks along the south side of the South Thompson River. First responders say the train was not carrying any dangerous goods. CP Rail says no one was hurt and there was no derailment when the train contacted the company's truck. 
It says an investigation is underway. CNH Industrial hosted a Tech Day launch at Phoenix, Arizona in early December and rolled out its first electric tractor prototype with autonomous features, the New Holland T4 Electric Power. Hailed as the industry's first all-electric light utility tractor prototype with autonomous features, the T4 was developed between the CNH team in the U.S. and Italy-based Modena and in collaboration with California-based Monarch Tractor. Commercial production is expected to begin at the end of 2023 with a broader product offering to follow. The T4 will offer a peak output of 120 horsepower and be available in four-wheel drive. Maximum road speed will be 40 kilometers per hour. Battery charging takes an hour on commercial fast charging systems and one charge should last a full day of operation. Noise is also reduced 90% over traditional models. The prototype also comes with sensors, cameras and control units which enable its autonomous and automated features including remote activation of the tractor via a smartphone app. China's state-owned grains trader, Kofco, says a new joint venture it has set up with state stockpiler Sinograin to manage the country's huge grain reserves will officially begin operations next month. The China Enterprise United Grain Reserve Company Limited was established in September and is part of the state's efforts to improve the efficiency of its grain reserves and better ensure food security. China buys soybeans and grain from global markets to stock its state reserves, which it says are critical to ensuring food supplies for the world's biggest population. Farm Management Canada held its annual Agricultural Excellence Conference last month at Canmore, Alberta, where Michelle Rogalski was announced as the 2022 recipient of the Wilson Laurie Award. The award, now in its 20th year, honors individuals or groups who have made an extraordinary contribution to advancing agricultural business management practices in Canada. Rogalski of Winnipeg dedicated her career to the advancement of agricultural education and training, retiring in 2022 from the University of Manitoba School of Agriculture after 33 years of service. With the school, Rogalski led a revitalization of the two-year diploma program, transforming the curriculum of applied farm management and production agriculture training. As part of the renewed curriculum, Rogalski engaged with industry technology partners to integrate digital agriculture, which resulted in a new course titled Agricultural Technologies for Farm Management Decision-Making. Throughout her career, Rogalski served on a number of industry boards, including the Canadian Agricultural Safety Association, the Canadian Agricultural Human Resources Council, and as chair of the Canadian Association of Diplomas in Agriculture Program. Ian Tyson, the British Columbia-born cowboy who became a Canadian folk and country music legend and southern Alberta rancher, died yesterday at the age of 89. A cause of death was not released, but Tyson was known to have had heart trouble since the mid-2010s. Born in Victoria in 1933, Tyson learned to ride horses on his father's southern Vancouver Island farm. 
He relocated to southern Alberta in his teens to compete in the rodeo circuit. Tyson began playing guitar in Calgary after being hospitalized for a rodeo injury and relocated at age 24 to Toronto, where in the midst of the folk music revival, he met songwriter and singer Sylvia Fricker, whom he would marry. Tyson went on to host a national television music show from 1970 to 1975, after which his marriage to Sylvia ended and he later relocated again to Alberta. There he took up ranching and training horses, most recently in the foothills region near Longview, about 60 kilometers southwest of Calgary. And that's the Ag Review portion of our program. It's now 12.37, and this is the third and final program from our coverage of a producer forum on precision agriculture held December 7th at the Canola Discovery Forum in Saskatoon. There were three farmers on the panel. Carl DeConnick-Smith farms 10,000 acres with his wife and parents in the Darcy area, just west of Rosetown. Rob Stone farms in the Davidson area and is a director with Sask Wheat. Shayla Worms farms with her husband Nick on land in the St. Walberg, Maqua, and Turtleford areas in northwestern Saskatchewan. The panel was moderated by Jay Wetter with the Canola Council of Canada. Prior to the discussion, farmers in attendance and online were asked to respond to this question in an electronic poll. What is the best reason to use precision agriculture tools? A, to get more profit from each acre. B, to do more work with the same or less labor. To use the most modern tools to be more sustainable, environmental and economic. So number one is to be more sustainable. Number two, shortly behind it, is to get more profit from each acre. Shayla, you agree? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, from the economic sustainability front, you heard it from all of us and the rest of the people speaking today that it does come down to economic sustainability because uh, if we don't have that, then we don't have an industry. But ultimately, also environmentally, a couple of reasons. I, I definitely, at heart, feel very passionate about the need to continue for future generations from an environmental standpoint. But it's also very important from a consumer standpoint. That's what and not that we're picking that answer because the consumers want it. It's because we want it as well. We want to continue for future generations. And then also that's very much what consumers are, are demanding is that they want to see that environmental kickback, that what we're doing is um, environmentally conscious and that that is at the top of mind. But ultimately what's exciting is that two are typically linked. So whatever is good for the environment, we like to think that it's also economically sustainable as well and we're going to see a profit from upholding the environmental um, stability that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rob? On my old Borgo 5710, I had a switch and when you got to the end of the field, you shut it off and then you turned around and then you turned it back on again. And that was really easy and I, I liked that. And a lot of days I would like that again because that's the easiest way, you know, it you replace a fuse if the switch doesn't work and then it works again. So we don't use these tools because they're, you know, a lot of times they can be a bit of a, a bit of a nuisance, especially if you're training a different operator or those sorts of things. Dad would much prefer the, the switch. He doesn't drive the drill because, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. So 
it has to return. And I agree that we're doing all of this stuff because the most popular answer is actually answers the rest of them is that that we're you know we need an economic return for all of these things and we definitely don't just do it for fun but we can definitely see a need for it and it is making us money so it's a it's a really nice really nice way for it to work uh, all the way through is christian hansen still here I, I think christian you said this morning that um auto steer was such a no-brainer that it was basically you know fully adopted is this is that optical spraying option on everything, every new unit, because their economics are, are so obvious. So Christian, if you're there, let me know. But uh, what do you think, Carly? I mean, would you expect that optical spraying, given the return for you, is just going to be everywhere within the next five to 10 years? Probably five years. Like, I mean, they're just coming out. I mean, there's probably only one or two even for sale right now even in saskatchewan like there there was one we did have an opportunity if we wanted a second unit we could have bought one uh out of rosetown but that may have been the only one in, in saskatchewan so the, it isn't widely available yet but it's coming as we get more of them spread out around the province and more people using them you know i think the the knowledge and uh, uh how they work will spread uh, napkin math i just did like on 7500 acres of burn off this year it was a hundred thousand dollars doesn't you just have to do a lot of math to understand there's there's big numbers now in this that honestly we're wasting an incredible pile of chemical over a lot of acres out there right now in certain seasons this spring was one of them a lot of people didn't either go out because there wasn't a lot there or just did it because that's what we always do sort of thing I guess I'd add in, like on the, and I kind of forgot about this point when you talk about volunteer canola and those sorts of things. We do rely not heavily, but we do rely significantly on residuals. So that does change the math on that as well, because you're spraying where the weeds aren't. And so, for volunteer canola, any of the canola stubble, you want to have a residual down. And so, you also have to consider the application of that and the timing of what other products you're applying as well. And obviously, you can go with different rates and things like that. But that's the one point that I think some people would probably consider to be um, something something that holds a, that math back a bit. You've been listening to a producer panel on precision agriculture that was held at the Canola Discovery Forum in Saskatoon, December seventh. There will be one final question for the panel coming up next. But first, it's time for the livestock market conditions and their presentation of the Yorkton Crossing Retirement Village. Livestock market conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for February are trading at 157.90 this hour. That's down 95. April live cattle trading at 161.75 down 70. January feeder cattle trading at 183.47, down 32. March feeder cattle trading at 186 even, down 77. February lean hogs trading at 87.55, down 112. April lean hogs trading at 95.20, down 50. And that's the livestock market conditions. I'm back with a producer panel on precision agriculture held at the Canola Discovery Forum in Saskatoon, December 7th. This question comes from Ian Epp, an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada. 
So we talked a lot about technology you've adopted or you think would be good to adopt in the future. Is there any precision egg technology that you're skeptical of or skeptical of this point, either the ROI or the actual tech being able to really help you on your farm? I'll jump in here. We talk a lot about, again, the autonomous um, entities and it just being that not only for our farm, again, that is um, dealing with a lot of hills and that, but it's just it's that even though it eliminates user error, which can be a good thing, it also is not a good thing on the reverse. It's kind of a catch-22 that way. So if you're dealing with something, just that um, system override option, that will really have to be the case. So as we start kind of picking those up, it'll probably be more so um, an operator out there having to observe everything anyways. So I think it's just, it's going to be a little bit slower because it's playing in the field of like of robots. And so people are a little bit less inclined to adopt those quickly because we're all human so that's our trust that's kind of at stake and so that would be not that I'm skeptical it's just it might take a, a while before everyone's ready yeah that's a great point that's really where we're at now with that technology is it's it's sort of it's observed autonomy it's not really let it go go to the lake let it do its thing it's uh, you still have to have someone somewhat close what i would like to do this year uh, running the uh, the omni power is to get a, uh, you still have to have somebody there but i would like to have a little bit of tether so i want to have an extra screen that i can have in my sprayer so the machine could be seeding 30 miles away with somebody that is physically there obviously has to fill the drill if it needs to be reset is there but Myself as, as sort of the prime operator, I can actually run that machine once it's set in motion in the field. If it stops, I can turn it around. I can be anywhere I want in the sprayer and I can do that. So that's the kind of the first stage of that little bit of tethering, I guess. You've been listening to segments of a 60-minute producer panel of Precision Agriculture that was held December 7th at the Canola Discovery Forum in Saskatoon. The producers were on the panel were Carl DeConnick-Smith, Rob Stone, and Shayla Worms. Please stay tuned. Your Commodities Update will be coming up right after this. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading down across the board this hour. March canola trading at 869.60, down $5.50. May canola trading at 867.40, down $4.90. March Minneapolis wheat trading at 931 and three quarters. That's up 17 and three quarters of a cent. March Kansas City wheat trading at 885 and a half, up 19 cents. March Chicago wheat trading at 790 and three quarters, up 16 and three quarters of a cent. March corn trading at 678 and a quarter down 1 and a quarter cents. March soybeans trading at 1524 and a half up 8 and a quarter cents. March oats trading at 367 and 3 quarters down 2 and a quarter cents. And that's the commodities update. Green Week 19 saw rail car demand trending down going into the colder months. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting, and he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition, a consortium of grain companies and producer organizations. 
He says he saw some slippage during week 19. Yeah, I think uh, slippage is a good term. The end, you know, was respectable, I would say, uh, at 80% order fulfillment, kind of at the low end of the range that they've been operating in for, you know, the better part of two months with, with few exceptions. Uh, not so good on CP. If you recall, we had seen a, a nice bounce from CP in week 18 after a couple of uh, not so good weeks in week 16 and 17 when they were down in the low 70s for order fulfillment. They had pushed that up to 84% uh, in week 18, but, uh, you know, reverted to form, if you will, unfortunately, in week 19, coming in at 76%. So, yeah, you know, the weather wasn't particularly bad in week 19. We did have some cold weather in the West, but, you know, frankly, nothing like what we're seeing right now, but that may have contributed a little bit, uh, not sure. But more broadly, I think what we need to focus on is the fact that uh, for CN, despite the fact they hung in at 80% in week 19. The trajectory on performance for them is pretty much down for the better part of the last four weeks. You know, they were operating in the high 80s, then the mid 80s, and now they're down to 80%. So that's not a good trajectory. Of course, time will always tell to see if they can turn the corner on that. And for CP, you know, it's just erratic, I guess is probably the best word to describe it. They haven't been particularly good for the better part of uh, two and a half months now, but they've been up and down lots. Their downs tend to be uh, more extreme than their ups. You know, we haven't seen them, I don't think, north of 85% or so for pretty much since September. And what we're seeing today uh, is not gonna help their efforts to be sure. When we look inside the numbers for CN and CP for week 19, uh, the story for the most part, the same uh, for both railways, and that was the Vancouver corridor. Demand, as we know, has been heavy uh, to Vancouver all year, and week 19 was no exception. When you put the two railways together, you know, demand in the Vancouver corridor was just shy of 6,000 of the 10,000 total cars ordered for that week by shippers, and uh, neither railway did particularly well servicing that quarter in week 19, CN 70%, CP 75%. And that kind of wrote the story because, uh, I mean, when one corridor dominates demand uh, by that much and you don't perform there, it's hard to make it up in smaller corridors. And that's pretty much what we saw. The other issue that's worth highlighting, I think, coming out of work uh, week 19 is the issue of outstanding order counts. Now, this has been an issue for CP for quite a while now. Uh, we've talked about this before, uh, and it goes hand in hand, of course, with poor order fulfillment performance. CN, unfortunately, seems to have joined the party, uh, so to speak, on this issue. They've been pretty good in, in keeping that number low uh, week to week until, let's say, the last four weeks. Uh, part of how they kept that number low was through some regular rationing of orders, which we've seen, I think, in 10 of the last 12 weeks. But coming out of week 19, they've hit the high watermark uh, for them this year. Uh, they're coming into week 20 with uh, more than 800 outstanding orders, which is up from 672, I think, the week before, and up from the 500s and the 300s in the two weeks prior to that. So the trend is not good. And CP, you know, has, has had issues here, as I said, for a while. And we thought we were seeing some progress over the last couple of weeks, but then they kind of turned south in week 19. And again, you know, hand in hand with the poor order fulfillment. So they're coming into week 20 carrying more than 1,500 outstanding orders. 
And that's the third time in the last four weeks that that number for CP has been at that level. So this issue, as we know, based on experience over prior years, uh, is problematic. Once you start rolling down the wrong road, difficult to turn and catch up on a backlog like that. And that's at the best of times. So with cold weather that's set in, you know, in Western Canada, pretty much from the Manitoba, Ontario border right to the coast, it's going to make that an even bigger challenge uh, for both railways. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what we see in week 20 and week 21 over the next couple of weeks. But this weather is not going to help that effort. Uh, and in fact, in the near term, it might make it worse. So something worth watching. Poirier notes something caught his eye on a provincial basis. Yeah, uh, you know, the second week in a row, I think, uh, fair to say, where performance has been a little volatile for both railways across the provinces. CN, much as we're seeing at the system level, they're kind of on the same trajectory over the last three weeks at the provincial level, Alberta and Manitoba in particular. They've kind of held even in Saskatchewan, um, although performance in Saskatchewan over the last three weeks wasn't, uh, or over the prior two weeks, wasn't as good as it was in the other provinces. And, you know, this week turns out to be the best at 82% for CN. But in Alberta and Manitoba specifically, um, CN's numbers have come down quite significantly over the last uh, two weeks. If we go back to week 17, they were 95% in Alberta. Week 18, that dropped to 86. Week 19, they're down to 79. Manitoba, even worse, arguably, they had two weeks in a row, 17 and 18 at 99%, and then came in with a resounding 74% in week uh, 19. And as I said a minute ago, Saskatchewan just kind of flat over the last three weeks, kind of hovering between 79 and 82%. So I guess the positive note there is steady, if nothing else. CP is a little bit different on that front. You know, the trend is similar, just in different places. They continue to perform the best in Alberta. You know, go back to week 17, they were in the mid-80s. They got that up to 98 and now 99. Uh, So it's interesting to see their performance declining quite significantly on a system basis, and yet in Alberta it's rising. And, you know, there are some folks who think they understand why that is. Manitoba and Saskatchewan, unfortunately, are different stories. Manitoba has just not been good at all for CP for the better part of two, almost three months now. If we go back to week 17, you know, 50%, if we, and then go forward 74% in week 18, we thought we were seeing a little daylight uh, on that front, but then they came in week 19 at 61%. So they've just kind of gone the other way. And Saskatchewan has been straight downhill for CP over the last three weeks, going from 86 to 74 to 71. So uneven, um, you know, Alberta shippers for the most part continue to see overall the best performance from both railways and i think manitoba and saskatchewan can best be described as you know volatile and and poor the issues at the provincial level are not really different and you wouldn't expect them to be necessarily than what we're seeing at the system level for the most part as it was at the system level vancouver was the driver Uh, cp and cn both did poorly in that corridor Uh, pretty much across the board, other than CP in Alberta, where they were great, obviously, because all of the demand was for Vancouver and they came out at 99%. So that's 
kind of an outlier on that argument. But the one exception really uh, was CP in Manitoba. What drove their performance way down this week was their performance in the Thunder Bay corridor, which we know is a key one for Manitoba, uh, particularly at this time of year as, you know, the Seaway is getting ready to close. So whatever product is left to move through that port is looking to do that now. Thunder Bay dominated demand. I think it was almost 70% of demand uh, in week 19 for CP in Manitoba and CP fell flat, I guess is the only way to put it, 64% order fulfillment. And when you put that together with 0% order fulfillment in the U.S. corridor coming out of Manitoba, that pretty much wrote the story for them this week. And Poirier predicts what demand will be like for weeks 20 and 21. Uh, yeah, they're they're coming down for sure. CN, uh, I would say... Uh, coming down faster and more steadily than uh, CP. You know, CN has been anywhere between 4,500 and 4,900 or 5,000 hopper car orders a week, you know, kind of week in and week out since peak season started in early to mid-September. But they've been coming down the last couple of weeks, and when we look forward to week 20, that number's come down quite dramatically. It's They're going to be at 4,000 cars based on the numbers that we can see in week 20, and then another drop in week 21 down to 3,500. CP generally is tracking down as well, um, you know, a little less steady downward trend, if you will. They're still looking at about 6,000 plus orders in week 20, but then a big drop to 5,300 in week 21. As you say, given the time of year, uh, there's two forces that are uh, probably acting on this trend. Uh, One is the pending closure of Thunder Bay. So if orders are not in uh, in week 21 for Thunder Bay, it's highly unlikely that, you know, by the time week 22 rolls around, which is going to be Christmas and then the week after Christmas, that the seaway is still going to be open, particularly if, you know, winter is getting as bad out there as it is here. So that's one one issue. The holiday period tends to slow demand down. That's not unusual. And then, you know, the other issue is, is how much demand are the railways uh, accepting? Um, that's more an issue with CN. When we see CN numbers drop this fast and this hard, given their past behavior, you always wonder if it's because they're rationing orders and that's why the numbers are low. Unfortunately, we don't tend to have a lot of visibility on that until we're actually measuring the week. So I guess by the time we get to the end of this week and we're calculating performance for week 20, we'll have some some better insight as to whether the uh, the lower demand is in fact, you know, a, a true reflection of, of lower market demand or other, other factors are at play, uh, most notably rationing. So trending down, and I would expect that to stay until we get through the New Year's period. So probably starting to work its way back up a little bit, starting, you know, either the first week in January or the second week in January. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting, and he monitors the railway's grain movement performance on behalf of the Ag Transport Coalition. His comments come from the Green by Train podcast produced by Pulse Canada, a member of the Ag Transport Coalition. Please stay tuned. Your agriculture weather is next. The GX94 Precision Weather Forecast for the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today. 
Partly sunny, winds south-southeast at 10 to 15, a high of minus 12, a wind chill at times of minus 25. For tonight, partly to mainly cloudy, winds southeast at 10 to 20, a low of minus 15, a wind chill of minus 25. For tomorrow, New Year's Eve, partly sunny, winds northeast at 10 to 15, a high of minus 11, and a low of minus 15. For New Year's Day Sunday, partly sunny, winds west-southwest at 10 to 15, and a high of minus 11. For Monday, partly sunny, a high of minus 9, and Tuesday, partly to mainly sunny, a high of minus 10. In the Paw, it's minus 17 degrees, Swan River is at minus 15, Dauphin, Brandon, and Roblin, minus 16, Show Lake Russell, minus 13. Regina is at minus 14, Saskatoon minus 11, Hudson Bay, Broadview, Mooseman minus 15, Indian Head minus 13, Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington minus 12. The Yorkton-Melville region has an overcast sky, a southeast wind at 9 kilometers an hour, 87% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 14 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 20 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again on Tuesday at 12.15 for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines. CJGX Yorkton, a Harvard Media radio station serving Saskatchewan and Manitoba. We are GX 94.